Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence, those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week, we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Today's host is Jen Hamrick, licensed social worker and executive director of Friends for a Nonviolent World. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, Mel Duncan. Mel is the Director of Advocacy and Outreach and one of the founders of Nonviolent Peace Force. With support offices in St. Paul, Brussels, and headquarters in Geneva, Nonviolent Peace Force has been working for nearly two decades to protect civilians and violent conflicts through unarmed strategies. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Mel. I'm really excited to have you. It's nice to be here, Jen. So Mel, you have been an advocate for economic and social justice, the environment, and peace for many years. What is it that brought you to and keeps you in this work? I was born to do this work. It was a matter of finding who I was meant to be at a very early age. When I was a teenager, I grew up during the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and was active in both of those. And during that time, I uh, first started thinking about active nonviolence, both as it was practiced by Dr. King, but also as I had been taught in Sunday school at a Methodist church in Iowa, it just seemed to not make any sense to me that anyone could justify violence in the name of Jesus, which it was being done often during the Vietnam War. So I uh, was involved in resisting the draft which really required me to clarify what my positions were and what I was willing uh, to do at, a, at an early age. But that period did force me really to look at what nonviolence was to me and how I could actively practice that throughout my life. So was there a moment when you realized this idea that you had for the nonviolent peace force? Was there a tipping point of, okay, now is the time to pull together an organization to do this work? There were two key points. In December of 1983, I was at a meeting about Central America and someone stood up and said, we're organizing a delegation to go to the northern border of Nicaragua. We think that the Contra War is being led by the CIA out of the U.S. Embassy in Tegucigalpa, and we furthermore theorize that if people like us are in those villages, they will not be attacked. So I raised my hand and uh, I was part of the first group that went to the northern border of Nicaragua in, the, in January of 1984. And what we found was that as long as we were present in those villages, and by we, I mean primarily people from the US and Canada, but there were also some Europeans who were there as well, that as long as we had that presence, those villages were never attacked. And they're there over a seven-year period. So that started me thinking more and more about how we could do this work more strategically because that work was totally ad hoc. I had two hours of training at the Newman Center before I left. Mm -hmm. And five days later, I was in the middle of a war. Uh, and 
So, but life intervened and uh, Georgia and I uh, had a family and raised our kids. And then in the late 1990s, I was fortunate to get a fellowship from the Bush Foundation to go for a couple of years and reflect on how to adjust what they called the mid-career leadership. I was fortunate to receive the fellowship and Georgia, who was a social worker in the St. Paul schools, took a sabbatical and she and I and our younger kids first went to a place called the University of Creation Spirituality on the edge of downtown Oakland, California. Now at that point, the Bush Foundation liked to send people to the Kennedy School or to the Humphrey Institute or to, the, to Stanford. And here I was going to the University of Creation Spirituality, which was above a piano store and across the street from a bombed out housing project. And during that first semester, I was involved in a class on the mystics. And we had just started a section on Rumi. And the class was being taught by a Sufi. And she started out that class by talking about the difference between Western style debate and Eastern style debate. And she was talking in broad generalizations, as you'll recognize. But she said in the West, we try to intellectually dominate the other person, where in the East, one tries to illuminate what the other person was saying. So I started daydreaming about various things. And I came to, to the Sufi staring in my face and saying, and your job is to enter the heart of your enemy. And I looked at her and I quickly looked and all my classmates were still sitting there in the class. And I looked at her again and she was staring at me. I didn't know who she was. She didn't know me. And I wrote in my ever-present notebook, enter the heart of my enemy. That is a good place to rip it out. And further down the page, I wrote, don't go back to sleep. This could change your life. From that moment, I was challenged to my very core about the dualistic way that I worked. It was always us versus them, good versus evil. 50% plus one means we kick their butt. And I was being provoked to start not only working, but understanding the world from a place of unity. And a year later, I was sitting in Plum Village with Thich Nhat Hanh. That, that was very challenging. I, it didn't take me five minutes to know I was in way over my head that uh, we had 12 hours of silence a day and the other 12 hours we didn't talk much. During that time, Thich Nhat Hanh was challenging that we were no longer at the point in history where we could afford to take sides, that the stakes were too high. And this was in 1997, 1998. And the stakes were too high for all sentient beings. And therefore we had to approach our common problems from a sense of our connection and our unity. And so it was upon leaving Plum Village, I was riding on a bus in southern France. And by this time, the Bush people were just thrown up their hands about what I was doing with their fellowship. And I wrote in my notebook a reflection piece on a nonviolent peace force. This was 1998. Kosovo was exploding. That was a bus trip away from where I was. So I came home at the end of 1998 and Georgia had come home earlier and started working in the schools and our kids had uh, resumed going to school. And I had this idea, but I had to go back to work. The fellowship had been generous, but we had moved family first to California and then to Scotland. So I started working and teaching and consulting and this idea would not leave me. And so one night, Georgia just said, just go for it. 
The next day, we disagree on this. She claims she was reading The Nation. I think I was. And there was a little piece about this conference coming up in The Hague in May of 1999, The Hague Appeal for Peace, mm -hmm. where people were coming together to develop an agenda to put an end to war during the 21st century. So as an organizer, I thought that would be a good place to go to test the currency of this idea. So I raised enough money for a plane ticket. I found a free place to the Hague or to stay in the Hague and I was off. And I got there and instead of 5,000 people, there were 9,000. Every venue was jammed. There were all kinds of people from all over the world. One showed up 45 minutes early to an event or you didn't get in. And so after a day, I called Georgia and I was nervous. People had given me $50 and $100 and my church had given me some money and I was there to try to organize this idea. And I said, it's, it's too crowded. There's too much noise. I could stand up on a chair and yell and I'll just fit into the background. And Georgia said, well, then be quiet and listen. So the next day, I'm jammed against the back wall of a session. And in the form of question, I hear a fellow lay out the same vision of a large-scale, well-trained, well unarmed civilian peace force. And so I shook my head like in the cartoons. I pushed through the crowd right during the session. I grabbed him by the arm and I said, if you're serious about what you just said, we have to go out in the hall and start organizing. We only have a couple of days here. Now, he claims he went willingly. I claim I didn't let go of him. <laughs> Uh, and that was a lifelong Quaker by the name of David Hartzell, who's very well known among the friends. And I had said to him, if you're serious about what you just said, he's serious about every word he says. So by that night, we were pulling together people to talk about, was this the place in history, the time to create a ongoing, well-trained, international, large-scale, unarmed civilian peace force? And we got lots of ideas from people and we wrote a concept note from that and started distributing that to people around the world. And then for the next two years, we maxed out our credit cards, uh, visiting areas of violent conflict, talking with people about what they were doing and what, if anything, they might need to assist them to do their work. And we learned a lot. The most important lesson that we learned was that no one can make anyone else's peace for them. Secondly, we learned that there is creative and courageous peace building and human rights work that's going on in the most violent places on the planet. And that is true today. It's more true today, in fact. And more often than not, regardless of culture, those efforts are being led by women. And women said to us, if there's not a consequence to us being disappeared, we're much more likely to be found in the ditch. And so even your presence with us will extend our ability to do our work. So we brought all those ideas together. And at the end of 2002, people came together in India. And uh, that was the founding event for Nonviolent Peace Force. What I really appreciated about that was that it took some time between when you had the initial idea and kind of when the implementation happened. And I think a lot of times I hear people who have an idea and feel really disheartened that I had this idea last week and I haven't been able to do anything with it. So I appreciate just kind of the perspective that sometimes these big, beautiful ideas take a little bit of time to season before people and communities are really ready to run with it. So I really appreciate that about what you just shared with us. 
The journalist Isadora Stone, uh, Izzy Stone, once said, if you expect to find the answers to your questions during your lifetime, you're not asking big enough questions. What else is there that's really special and unique about the work that Nonviolent Peace Force does? Our focus is on the protection of civilians and the prevention of violence. We are the largest ongoing organization of unarmed civilian protection in the world. In fact, one of the things that we learned during this time that we were traveling around visiting with people was that this idea of a well-trained unarmed civilian peace force was not an idea that had originated with me in Plum Village, was not an idea that had originated with David, uh, but was a recurrent vision and had occurred and recurred to enough of us. As, as we would talk with people, people would say, oh, I've, I've had that idea. Or we tried that in our village in Gujarat. Or I wrote my capstone project on this subject. Or I've had recurrent dreams about this. And so as we brought people together, it was much more a function of finding people and holding the focus than organizing people. And I think that that's probably the greatest contribution that David and I made in that we had the stubbornness uh, to hold the space where uh, lots of people could come together who knew what they were doing and could uh, create nonviolent peace force. We also pay our people and that makes us different. And when we were starting this process in the original concept note, we had that we would be subsistence workers. And as we talked with people, especially in the global south, they would say, your privilege is showing. Perhaps some of you in the global north can afford to leave your families for two years because we do want long-term commitments. Uh, we can't do much in, in two to four weeks, but there's lots of us who can't leave for that period of time. And we dare say there's lots of people in the north who can't either. And other people said to us, this really should be a profession. Uh, this isn't just not to say not to diminish volunteerism, but it needs to be more than that. It needs to be something that someone can build a career on, uh, can study to do, can do for the long term. And indeed, we've had people with us five, six. The longest term person was with us in the first project in 2003 in Sri Lanka, a fellow by the name of Olo Otieno. Uh, and he's with us right now in South Sudan. He's going to work one more year and then return to Nairobi, where a Jesuit university is giving him space to write about what he's learned. And so we have this expertise that's grown up among people who know a lot about violent conflict and have lived it and worked in it and have succeeded and failed. So the ability to be able to pay people and to keep them on has allowed us that opportunity. You rely on staff to serve as unarmed civilian protectors. Can you talk about what that experience and training is like? I was looking at our website recently, and our website is nonviolentpeaceforce.org, uh, and I went to the work with us section, and there was a job advert, and it said something like uh, that they were recruiting for people who would do direct protection in an area of violent conflict in South Sudan, where you would be living in either a tent or a cinder block, where it was often 40 degrees or hotter, or you were walking up to your knees in mud. It was physically demanding. You would not have a lot of food at times. And uh, that 
you would at times have to walk 20 kilometers a day. And I thought, oh my goodness, who in their right mind would ever apply for this job? And we have at least 10 applicants for every position. We never, ever have lacked for applicants. And there are a lot of people in this world who want to do this work and want to do similar work. And if given the, given the opportunity, they do. So I think our median age right now is probably around 35. Our youngest people in the field are 25. Our oldest people ever uh, were 65. Older people can apply if they want. We do not take anyone under age 25. We look for people who have had cross-cultural experience, and that doesn't necessarily mean traveling internationally because that can be an expression of privilege. It may mean uh, how have they crossed boundaries in their communities? How then have they worked effectively together with other communities? How have they as groups had to make decisions that were of consequence in limited periods of time? We don't have time uh, to say, well, let's wait till next month and we'll have another meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, often we have people from very different backgrounds who are making life and death decisions in a couple of minutes. And so we, we can have people who will want to carry on and say, well, you know, let's uh, consider this and let's, you know, sometimes we have to move quickly. So people who have made decisions, who have had either by choice or not choice to live in stress, people who have failed, we don't need the undefeated because we do very tough work in the field and we're going to see tough stuff. Once they are recruited, they come to a training. Uh, the training is really an elongated screening because we don't keep everyone. And that training, first of all, starts out on our three pillars, which are nonviolence, nonpartisanship, and the primacy of local actors. And then we go into nonviolence and the history and the organizing. And the, then that takes us to the methodologies uh, there's 10 different methods that we use that moves us into engaging with communities, how to engage with communities, and then conflict analysis, looking at conflicts and how you might decide to apply which methods to that particular conflict, how you would set up and, and work in a project, how you would exit. And then for the first quarter that they're in the field, they make no decisions. They're there with their colleagues and are working along with them, but uh, are still learning about uh, how to work in the field. Nonviolent Peace Force has administrative offices in Geneva, Brussels, and St. Paul. Tell us a little bit more why St. Paul. I think we can be proud that our U.S. base is in St. Paul. We started in a spare bedroom in our house and grew from there. And I don't think that it was by accident. We do have a very vibrant community here that um, is committed to volunteerism. We have a strong peace and justice community, and we also have a community that is rather philanthropic and that supports creativity. So all of those things came together. We um, depended a great deal on volunteers at the beginning, and uh, we still depend a great deal on individual contributions. So 
it made sense that in this community, and I know we have our flaws, but also a community that has a rich tradition in fighting for peace and justice and in supporting those kinds of efforts and in spawning entrepreneurship and creativity, I think that those are good answers to why it's St. Paul. Nonviolent Peace Force as an organization, and you personally work with the United Nations. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, I was there for, for six and a half years until I came back a year ago. And so that was really pushing the understanding and the policy support and the funding for unarmed approaches to the protection of civilians in an organization that relies heavily upon armed approaches. Just like Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And so when David and I first went to the UN, I remember this very clearly, in the fall of 1999, with these sheets of paper, these flyers explaining this idea, there were only five people who would see us. I was handing out leaflets to the volunteers in the UNICEF shop because they would at least talk to me. And so we went through that period of being ignored. And then it wasn't necessarily where they laughed at us, but they would say, oh, we're sure that that was helpful to a human rights defender in Guatemala and that's important, but there's no policy implications here. And then in 2015, we got a huge break when an overall review of all UN peace operations led with unarmed approaches must be at the forefront of the UN efforts to protect civilians. Then people started getting serious and the elbows got sharp. Uh, and so there certainly has been that pushback and still exists. I, I was on a, a phone conference before I came here with a group of NGOs at the UN who almost all are militarists. And when I said, we were talking about a meeting with the Secretary General, and I said, well, I think we have to be clear and challenge the militarization of the uh, protection of civilians. No one said a word. And that's the way it works. No one said a word. But then you don't get invited to the next meeting. But then what happened is we continued to increase momentum. We didn't exactly win. But now we're hearing people at the UN saying, well, we already do that. And so it's, it's gone that um, route. Is there anything else you would like people to know about you or the Nonviolent Peace Force? There are more peace builders, more conflict transformers, more mediators, more people working on alternatives to violence, more civil resistors, more unarmed civilian peacekeepers alive in the world than ever before in history. And that number is growing. And we need to keep that in mind every time that we are besieged by the next flash of breaking news. That number is growing and we are there and we will continue to grow. Mel, it's been an honor to be here getting to listen to all of your wisdom. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today and to share the story of Nonviolent Peace Force with us. Oh, thank you, Jen. It was nice talking with you. for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, 
or give us a call at 651-917-0383.